1: The city of Yakutsk in Siberia is the coldest permanently inhabited city in the world. In winter, temperatures routinely dip to 40 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The city's home to about 300,000 people, and much of the architecture is Soviet-era style black buildings. And they're built on permafrost. That's ground that's been frozen continuously for at least two years. These frozen layers can be as shallow as only a few feet, but in some parts of the world, they can stretch as deep as a mile underground. Yakutsk is the largest city that has something known as continuous permafrost, meaning that the soil there never thaws, or at least it didn't before. But now the residents of Yakutsk are seeing ground that's been permanently frozen for thousands of years start to shift.
2: The houses are buckling and cracking.
1: My colleague, Ann Simmons, is chief of the Wall Street Journal's Moscow bureau. She recently returned from a reporting trip to Yakutsk.
2: Um, houses used to be built um, on, well, they're all built on piles and they, they stand on stilts. Many of them are old uh, Soviet-era buildings. And they used to be sunk like 26 feet into the frozen ground. But because the permafrost has been melting, Local engineers there tell us that now they have to dig almost 40 feet down in order to ensure that these piles are anchored in the earth.
1: There are thousands of apartment buildings here. Simmons says, according to a local ecologist, fewer than three dozen of this city's 2,000 concrete apartment buildings were deemed safe when tested roughly 10 years ago. And the problem stretches beyond the city's walls. The entire region of Yakutia, also known as the Sapa Republic, the thaw is making it harder for people to get to and from work, school, and other places they need to go.
2: Drivers are saying that uh, they have to use more uh, fuel, more gas, because the roads are buckling and it's causing a lot of wear and tear on cars. Even trains are going slower than, uh, than normal because the tracks are eroding.
1: Parts of the area have also seen severe flooding. In some cases, whole villages have been relocated to more stable ground. Permafrost makes up 65% of Russia, and Siberia makes up more than half of the country. So it's a huge swath of land, over 5 million square miles, bigger than the entire U.S., and over 30 million people live here. Our colleague Georgi Kanchev covers the European economy. He says the Russian government estimates that the country stands to lose $68 billion by 2050, Because of infrastructure damaged by thawing permafrost.
3: That also applies to oil and gas and and mining infrastructure in some cases. Some pipelines are pretty old as well, so those have to be uh, potentially uh, changed. And some of these facilities have to be rebuilt, which costs money. So we're talking about a pretty significant price tag to thawing permafrost for the Russian economy.
1: World leaders, climate scientists, and activists have been working on setting new targets for carbon emissions. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and slow down global warming, mitigate climate change, lessen its impact. But climate change is already here. People all over the world are already being impacted by it. And the scientific models used to predict the kinds of changes we're seeing now may not be specific enough to help communities develop strategies to adapt. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today, part four of our series, Zero Carbon Future, a focus on adaptation. How are communities changing their ways of thinking, living, and doing business as the climate changes around them? And what are the next steps for climate scientists trying to give communities a roadmap to adapt to the changes yet to come?
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols.
1: Siberia is built on permafrost. This type of ground is found underneath a quarter of the Northern Hemisphere. It's also found in parts of the Arctic Ocean and in some areas of the South American Andes, the Southern Alps of New Zealand and the Tibetan Plateau. And just like in Russian Siberia, permafrost is thawing in some of those other places too. It's causing some of the worst damage in Canada, China, and in the United States. Producer and reporter Emily Schwing lives in Alaska. Hey, Emily, have you
4: seen this kind of damage up there? Yeah, so I used to own a little house about 300 miles north of Anchorage in Fairbanks. And up there, everyone has to deal with permafrost. So next to the house, there was this little detached garage, and eventually it started kind of looking like a listing ship. It was tipping backwards as the permafrost underneath of it started to thaw. And so two years ago, we spent a long weekend taking most of it apart by hand. Then we dragged what was left of it to higher ground, and now it's just this small shed.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow. And I'm assuming it's not just your house, right? I
4: mean, others are experiencing this too? So this is a really big problem here. I've seen neighbors in Fairbanks struggle with failing septic systems. There are building foundations that have cracks in them. There's flooding and it all costs tens of thousands of dollars. The state for years has been experimenting with all kinds of road construction projects to avoid these kinds of problems.
1: Yeah, Ann Simmons mentioned that the big thaw in Siberian
4: permafrost is buckling roads. Is that what you're seeing there too? So the roads here in Alaska where there's permafrost often develop what we call whoop-de-doos, It's like an undulating roller coaster effect. There's also
5: slumping and cracking, and in some cases, the roads just collapse. We've always been battling thawing permafrost. Anywhere we've we've built infrastructure on thaw-sensitive permafrost, it's been an issue.
4: This is Jeff Curry. He's been a materials engineer with the state of Alaska's Department of Transportation for more than two decades. Anecdotally, it's getting worse. In Alaska, permafrost mainly exists north of the Alaska Range, a mountain range that runs across the middle of the state. And there's four highways here that cover nearly 1,100 miles. Curry estimates at least 10% of those 1,100 miles are really problematic. And another 20% are in need of regular attention because of damage related to shifting and thawing permafrost. So one of the ways the state's trying to adjust is by adapting its roads. Curry is standing on the side of a road near the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where an experimental embankment was built back in 2003. It's called an air convection embankment, ACE. And to an untrained eye, it looks simply like a pile of dark gray, jagged boulders spread out along the sloping shoulder of the roadside.
5: The point is to have this void space between the rocks so that air can circulate in there. And in the wintertime, the, the pavement above this ACE rock is exposed to the air which can be very cold in Fairbanks. Uh, you know, below zero Fahrenheit is common. It used to get down to 50 below, but it doesn't anymore. <laughs> but uh, It still
4: gets to 30, it's still, 30 below. It's, That's still cold.
5: It's, it, still gets, <laughs> it still gets cold. And the point is that it gets much colder than the permafrost. The road is built
4: on top of the permafrost, and that permafrost is actually warmer than the road surface at certain times of the year. If it's 30 degrees below zero outside in January, that's also the temperature of the surface of the road. But in Fairbanks, the permafrost underneath that road's surface typically hovers just below freezing at 31 degrees above zero. This experimental design uses air convection, where warm air rises as cooler, more dense air sinks, to keep the permafrost underneath frozen.
5: So, the warm air on the bottom moves up in the embankment up towards the pavement. And at the pavement area, that, that air becomes colder, and the cold air likes to sink. So, it creates these internal convection cells and essentially pulls heat out of the permafrost during the winter whenever the pavement surface is quite a bit colder than the permafrost.
4: This road's been here since 2003. It's pretty flat, no whoop de doos no sagging, no failures. So it's working. Curry and his colleagues are putting the finishing touches on a report all about it. The simplicity of this design makes it useful all over Alaska. But because it's expensive to haul rocks, experiments are now underway to figure out if the kinds of rocks used in an embankment make a difference. Here in fairbanks the rocks are about the size of a microwave and the edges are jagged but further north curry says the state is experimenting with local rock like rounded smooth cobbles from a river they're also experimenting with how thick the layer of rock should be so that it's effective there are three other projects that utilize air convection embankments on highways in alaska
5: and all this is in in an effort to come up with less expensive designs that are more cost-effective, and particularly in places where that bedrock is not available.
4: In 2019, Curry says the maintenance and operation budget for the state's northernmost highway, the Dalton, was $5.4 million. He also says it can cost $2 million to build a single mile-long embankment. The embankment we're looking at is just a fraction of that size. If the Department of Transportation here had to build embankments along hundreds of miles of Alaska's highways where they cross permafrost, it would blow up the budget. So this is an extremely expensive way to adapt to thawing permafrost.
1: Emily, I'm wondering if this type of adaptation, this design, can it be used in other places as
4: well? Is it catching on? It can be used wherever there's both permafrost and a road. Canada is using it on the Alaska Highway and the Yukon, and in China, air convection embankments have been used to stabilize the high elevation railway that connects China and Tibet. But there is one problem. The design is built around the idea that Alaska has long stretches of winter at sub-zero temperatures. Curry and other engineers like him just don't know how long that will be the case.
5: Now here's the rub. If the winters become shorter, which they are, and become warmer, there's gonna be a little bit less cooling effect every winter. And if the summers become longer and perhaps warmer, there's gonna be a little more thawing. So this system works well now and it should work well in 30 years. But if the temperature trends continue in the direction they're going, it will not work forever. Curry
4: says Alaska's Department of Transportation relies on worst-case scenario modeling from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
5: But that begs the question, what happens after 30 years? And in the big scheme of things, I don't have a good answer for that. Alaska's not alone. Extreme
4: heat is also causing problems in places that are known for more moderate temperatures. Earlier this year, roads buckled in Oregon, Minnesota, and a host of other states in the Pacific Northwest and Midwest in the extreme heat. And in Arizona, emergency rooms treated patients with severe burns from searing road surfaces.
1: The federal government is trying to address these issues. A recently passed bill includes tens of billions of dollars for projects that aim to make infrastructure more resilient against the effects of climate change. To get these projects going, though, it helps to be flush with funding. And you also want to be able to look into the future somehow. And science does have a way to do that, climate models. But some researchers fear the models we have now are inadequate for policy making, for urban planners and designers to rely on. Coming up, how science is adapting to the need for more microclimate models.
2: High inflation has impacted many of us, but what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276 percent? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck.
6: At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough.
2: And money quickly loses value. You can't save that to anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers.
1: While failing roads and a hefty infrastructure price tag are high stakes in Alaska, communities elsewhere are facing different challenges. Megafires, sea level rise, coastal erosion, drought, and extreme heat. How individual communities respond will depend on how climate change plays out locally. Emily, we've been hearing about communities working to adapt to the changing climate Do we have a sense of where else this kind of work on adaptation is happening?
4: Yeah, we have an idea. So there's one estimate from researchers at Carnegie Mellon University that shows that as of May 2020, at least 48 cities in the U.S. have climate adaptation plans in place. There's at least one plan that addresses climate action in every U.S. state. What are some of the specifics of these plans? So that same work from Carnegie Mellon broke down different kinds of plans. Action plans, the authors say, are usually dominated by mitigation efforts. Things like reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Adaptation plans outline actions cities are taking to actually live with what has already changed and what may change in the future. In some cases, these kinds of plans do both. We'll go back to Resolution 87. This summer, Washington state, like much of the Pacific Northwest, saw massive wildfires as a result of severe drought. So just last month, after two and a half years of meetings and work with a number of agencies, organizations and higher education institutions, the state's second largest city, Spokane, adopted a plan that combines mitigation strategies like reducing greenhouse gas emissions and utilizing renewable energy with adaptation.
1: That all council members are... For example,
4: to respond to severe drought and its impact on water resources in the city, Spokane's new plan includes incentives for residents to replace thick green lawns, which require tons of water with more drought-resistant plants. The plan also calls for funding for a study of the regional aquifer to determine future impacts to water availability for the city. Now, this plan does not automatically... Put anything into law or practice. Spokane's city council passed the plan as a resolution, not as legislation. But council member Betsy Wilkerson says she sees the plan as a way for the city to work with agencies and the mayor's office to actively respond to the impacts of climate change.
3: Yes, there are many questions that are unanswered,
4: but climate change is not stagnant. It's fluid, it's not going to stop.
2: I have set the genie's out of the bottle. We talk about climate change on a global level, almost daily on the news. So we cannot ignore it and that it will not happen here. And
5: there are costs uh, as with everything.
4: The thing is, all of this adaptation, it's really expensive. There's very little upfront payoff and not a lot of political gain, since much of it is focused on the future. Spokane City Council member Michael Cathcart was the only member to oppose the plan. He raised concerns in particular about how the plan might increase the cost of new construction.
7: I worry a lot about us putting a lot of policies in place that have the potential for uh, leaving us in a, a competitive disadvantage with regards to our region, our neighbors, the country.
4: Spokane, like other smaller cities, is competing with larger urban centers for new business and tax revenue. It's the only city of its size along the Interstate 90 corridor between Seattle and Minneapolis. So for decision makers like Cathcart, adopting a plan like this could be economically risky for the city's future. We've heard from the opponents of the plan that this is too costly. City council members who voted for the plan, like Lori Kinnear, say the real cost isn't short-lived. She says there's also a long-term expense if the council doesn't act. What's the cost of losing cities to wildfires or lives to monstrous storms? What's the cost of the 20-plus lives that were lost this summer here because of extreme heat? The costs are immense, and they're ones that we cannot afford. Spokane's current plan was guided by a toolbox of science compiled by an interdisciplinary team of scientists from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. The tools in the toolbox include things like long-term weather data that can explain how weather patterns have changed over time. There's information on water monitoring that can be used to understand developing drought conditions, And there are also tools that allow users to plug in locations and time periods to get a better sense of what future climate might look like in eastern Washington state. Some climate science experts are calling for upgrades to climate modeling. So it's not only about implementing strategies to adapt within cities and communities, but the science that informs those decisions, well, that has to adapt too.
1: So the same kind of data that climate scientists might use to create climate models. Yes.
6: Climate models, they're a way of putting our entire planet in a test tube.
1: My colleague, Robert Lee Holtz, he's been a science writer at the Wall Street Journal for more than a decade.
6: We have no way of making a second Earth on which we can conduct experiments. So we do it digitally. We create a virtual planet That's really what a climate model is. It contains a mathematical and physical description of every single thing we know about how our planet operates, the physics, the atmospherics, the hydrology, the effects intended and unintended of human activity. And we run them all on the fastest supercomputers we can find as a way of exploring the future.
1: Climate models date back to the 1800s, when a Swedish scientist first figured out the link between carbon dioxide and atmospheric temperatures and noted CO2's greenhouse effect. Then in 1967, Shikuro Manabe co-wrote a paper that among other things confirmed the connection between CO2 and the warming of the atmosphere. Professor Manabe was co-awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics this year, together with Klaus Hasselmann and Giorgio Parisi. Manabe's work paved the way for the sophisticated computer modeling techniques we have today. Now, tools like AI and machine learning are helping to parse through the mountain of raw data to help improve climate prediction techniques. Emily, what kinds of data are scientists using to create the climate models we have today?
4: Yeah, so these climate models, they're all about probabilities. It's like, how likely is something to occur? And these probabilities, they're based on long-term records of weather, ocean temperatures and currents, and atmospheric chemistry. So modelers develop mathematical equations based on what happens on land, in the ocean, and then up in the atmosphere over time. They can adjust all those variables within those equations to account for things like increased or decreased rainfall, changes in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, and also ocean temperatures. Then, like Lee said, they use really powerful computers to solve those equations. And they do this again and again while adjusting different variables. What happens if it's warmer? What happens if there's more rain? And eventually, they'll get some predictions. The one caveat is that these models apply on really large global scales, but they're not as good at predicting what could happen on smaller, more local scales.
1: What does that mean, though? I mean, don't climate models already predict our extreme weather
4: events? Yeah, but they're still not precise enough to predict when they might happen, how often, and in some cases, exactly where they'll have the biggest impact. For example, over Halloween weekend this year, torrential rains inundated the south-central region of Alaska. Where I live, roughly 50 miles south of Anchorage, we had nearly 14 inches of rain in three days. It was a record in the region. There was so much water that it washed out neighborhood roads and it cut off access to critical infrastructure. And that includes our wastewater treatment plant. But
1: predicting these intense weather events, that feels like a meteorologist's job. How could climate models have helped in this case?
4: So I talked to Rick Toman about this. He's a climate specialist for the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment and Policy at the University of Alaska
7: Fairbanks. What I'm talking about is not We're going to have a forecast for June 18th, 2042, about 3 p.m. That's not what we're talking about. But what we can do, what are the chances of the catastrophic rains, for instance, that we saw in Germany this summer, in the New York City area this summer?
4: In his perfect climate science world, the research will provide what he calls climate science deliverables information and data that's palatable and useful to the general public, where they live, on the ground. But he says this is also a communication problem. For example, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has used global climate models to predict catastrophic climate-driven disasters if the Earth's average temperature warms more than 2 degrees Celsius. But that's a global number. It's not clear what that means locally. Two degrees of warming globally will mean something entirely different in the southwest than it does in the northeastern region of the U.S. So here in Alaska and elsewhere in the far north, warming is happening three times faster than the rest of the world.
7: What we don't have nearly enough of is what does two degrees of warming at the global scale mean at the regional level, at the local level? Inner Mountain West, Alaska, right down to the local scale, individual communities, individual tribes.
1: How do we get to this more local level that Rick Thoman's talking about?
4: Part of it is getting more data. There's some important information that we just don't have. That includes data on how wet the soil is. This is just one example, but it really illustrates the problem. Scientists know that weather, like rainfall, directly affects soil moisture— but they have less clarity on how things work in the opposite direction. What they do know is that soil moisture can affect humidity and precipitation, runoff into streams and rivers, and even ocean currents. They know that evaporation is the major driver in soil moisture's influence on weather patterns and longer-term climate. So for example, wetter soils can regulate temperature more effectively than dry soils, because when the water evaporates from the soil, has a cooling effect at the Earth's surface. So we know it would be really helpful for localized climate models to have more data about soil moisture. Now, here's the big but. It's really hard to measure soil moisture and it's highly variable. This kind of specific data would be really helpful to John Walsh. He's the chief scientist at the International Arctic Research Center And he's been modeling climate in Alaska for decades. Walsh is an expert in localizing climate models, or what's known as downscaling.
3: We like to say that the the climate model is like looking through a blurry telescope or a blurry camera lens. The downscaling gives it much more focus.
4: Walsh says downscaling models to understand localized events is an important step in helping communities adapt to climate change.
3: We had the State Department of Transportation come to us. They're now required to take into account future changes in heavy, heavy summer rain events. The, you know the things they call gully washers, the downpours. When they put in bridges and culverts, these culverts are designed to handle what what's expected to be the you know the heaviest rain event you might get in a particular period. But if that heaviest rain event in a particular period is becoming heavier, more intense, they now need to factor that change into the design of the culvert size so that they're, they're able to handle what's expected in the future.
1: So kind of like the Halloween
4: rain you got in your area? Yep, exactly. But the kinds of data that could help John Walsh work directly with Alaska's Department of Transportation or other policy and decision makers... It starts to get really granular.
1: Yeah, that's what our colleague Robert Lee Holtz was saying as well when we talked to him about climate modeling.
6: You're talking about processes as small and as intricate as the interaction of water droplets inside a cloud, you know, which can in turn affect how the cloud forms, which in turn affects how the cloud bank forms, which in turn affects how much energy gets bounced back into space and not heating the Earth, which in turn affects, I mean, it goes on and on, but it's all traced down to this like micro process.
1: Scientists won't be looking at long term weather patterns and trends. Instead, they'll be digging into these really interconnected processes to better understand what makes those trends possible. But Robert Lee Holtz says this kind of data collection has limits, not only in how it's collected, but also how it's analyzed.
6: We have the limits of our own understanding of the physics. We have computational hard limits that we're coming up against in terms of the amount of computing power we can bring to bear.
4: Yeah, computational power is one issue. It takes massive computers to process the kind of data we're talking about. But there's another problem. Rick Toman says downscaling makes it tough to be really sure about what the model is actually telling us.
7: Oh, it's extremely difficult. The, the smaller scale you get, the, the, the more, to use the sciency jargon, the more noise there is. And, and by noise, I mean there's lo- more factors that are going to influence the outcomes in a specific region or community.
4: So if we have all this data, like the soil moisture data and the microclimate data, it's just a lot of information and it can become more challenging to parse through it all and not lose sight of the necessary adaptations.
1: That's something the National Science Foundation is really focused on right now. It's just unveiled a five-year, $25 million grant to fund a new technology center that'll focus on using AI, artificial intelligence, and physics to help narrow down these persistent uncertainties in climate modeling.
4: But even after the climate models can be scaled to a level that makes them more user-friendly for decision makers... Climate modelers like John Walsh say they'll still present an incomplete picture. So, Emily, what might
1: still be missing?
4: Well, John Walsh says it's the actions we take and our decisions. Human action. So just as humans in the past altered the climate by building dams, cutting down trees, and burning fossil fuels, we must predict how humans will adapt to a changing planet in the future. And integrate that adaptation, those changes into the feedback loop, into the new, more local climate models.
3: So I think that that human dimension is is a key one. Um, There might even be things like population migrations in response to a change in climate that could affect what happens at the ground, which in turn affects the atmosphere. So I think the big next frontier in climate modeling is somehow narrowing down this uncertainty range about what people will do by getting people into the picture.
1: As the UN's climate conference concludes in Glasgow and the world strives to meet new net zero carbon goals for the future, more accurate climate models can help guide leaders and policymakers in how best to adapt Our Zero Carbon Future series started with a look at how a community north of Scotland switched to making and exporting renewable energy. We moved on to highlight how better energy storage strategies could make renewables more stable and how carbon capture techniques could be part of the solution. And that human element missing in the models, it plays a role in all of these initiatives that help get us to our zero carbon future. Emily, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Maddie Bender is our fact checker. Sarah Gibbel-Laska is our sound designer. Our producers are Caitlin Nicholas and Emily Schwing. Special thanks to columnist Rochelle Toplensky and senior energy correspondent Sarah McFarlane for their reporting and input into crafting the Zero Carbon Future series. Kateri Yoakam is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.